You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash missionlog today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash missionlog, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash missionlog. This episode is also sponsored by Helix Sleep. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash missionlog. This episode of Mission Log is also brought to you by the Eagle Moss Hero Collector Shop, home of the official Star Trek collectibles and favorites from Battlestar Galactica, the Orville, Stargate, even Space 1999, and more. Discover Tis the Season for Pop Culture Savings when you go to GetYourTrekOn.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 429, Till Death Do Us Part. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every moment of Star Trek, from the series to the movies, and see if they would stand the test of time, and try to find the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, till death do us part. The one where Sisko is torn between following his heart or the will of the prophets, the one where Damar and Kanar are at a crossroads, and the one where Worf, uh, uh, well, uh, we'll get to him soon enough. But before we dive into this episode, here's a quick word from our friends at Eagle Moss. Fans of the official Star Trek starships, I, I know who you are. You're listening to me right now. From Eagle Moss, Hero Collector, be it the original collection of five to six inch starships or the larger Star Trek Discovery collection or the even larger XL editions. Those of you looking to complete your collections or simply purchase single starships for, well, yourselves or as holiday gifts for yourselves, well, your ships have come in literally. The Eagle Moss Hero Collector Shop is open and ready to do business, and listeners of Mission Log can enjoy special holiday savings right now. Go to GetYourTrackOn.com and just take a look at the variety of ships waiting for you there, many of them shop exclusives. Norman, I know you know what those exclusives are. You're going to tell us right now. Well, we're going to spotlight a few of those ships, some of the bonus ships that are now available. There's the Predator-class Kazon Carrier featured in the first two seasons of Star Trek Voyager. There's also Steth's coaxial starship, also seen on Star Trek Voyager, equipped with an experimental coaxial warp drive that had allowed it to fold space, traveling vast interstellar distances in moments. And I know you're excited about this, John. I, I, I want this. I, this. This one is going to be mine. <laughs> so one of the most recognizable, and dare I say, dare you say, dare the audience say, <laughs> beloved icons from Star Trek, the original series. The Nomad Probe. Yes, nicely done. The Nomad Probe was launched from Earth in the early 21st century, and Nomad was humanity's first interstellar vessel. But a run-in with the alien probe Tanru turned it into an engine of destruction, also pretty much wiped out Uhura's memory. <sighs> Not good. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I guess that counts as one of the USS Enterprise's greatest threats. All of these... All of these special ships and all the ships from Eagle Moss are officially authorized by CBS Studios, and each and every model is die-cast, hand-painted, and comes with a display stand plus an in-depth magazine featuring exclusive artwork and highlighting the ship's history, design, and place in Star Trek lore. Oh, but wait, there's more. I always wanted to say that. There mm-hmm. are ships and other collectibles from Battlestar Galactica, the Orville, Stargate, Space 1999, because they're beautiful. Something for absolutely everyone on your gift list. And when you go to GetYourTrekOn.com now, right now, you'll discover that tis the season for pop culture savings with 10% off a purchase of $25, 15% off a $50 purchase, or 20% off a $75 purchase. Certain exclusions do apply. So don't wait. To order, engage at GetYourTrekOn.com today. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with this week's wedding vows. Trivials. This week's trivia. Trivia. This week's trivia. Well, thank you for that, Norman. Trivia for this week's episode, Till Death Do Us Part. It was written by David Weddle and Bradley Thompson. And here we have Ira's friends again who started with DS9 back in season four. They have one more episode in them for DS9 before the very end. One note here is how they were cranking along with the plot and a last minute decision was made to put the wedding scene in this episode rather than the next. Uh, They referenced what Ron Moore had written for Captain Picard, and Ron had been referencing what was written for Captain Kirk, so we're just keeping those Star Trek wedding vows pretty consistent. And um, remember we were talking about the name of the previous episode, Penumbra, and you might logically think then that this episode should be called Umbra. Well, you are right. That was the original idea. But as much planning as went into these final episodes of the series— They still had different writers working at different times, as we just mentioned. And and those scripts, as they came in, well, certain changes were made. So, as I just said, that wedding scene that was supposed to take place in the next episode, but then it was decided dramatically to speed that up. So, here we have the wedding at the end, and that felt like a good enough reason to change the title. So, we drop the shadow and light eclipse theme pretty early on. This was directed by Vinrich Kolbe, uh, final episode here on DS9 for Rick. He did a total of 13 on this series, uh, but he directed 16 on TNG, and we will catch him again on Voyager, where he turned in 18 episodes from the director's chair. Let's mention our guest stars real quick. Well, welcome back mostly to characters that you know. Uh, Among the recent guest stars who we have seen, we also have Louise Fletcher returning as Kai Wen. She's on DS9 with her valet named Solbar, and he's played by James Otis. 
While James doesn't have the longest on-screen resume, he did have a theatrical background, and he also appeared in a handful of feature films like The Black Dahlia, The Prestige, Stardust Memories, and Dragonfly, which was his first professional credit back in 1976. This episode marks his first Trek appearance, and it would have been his only Trek appearance, but the producers liked him and brought him back for a couple more episodes of DS9. James passed away in 2020. For a solid, Damar sure leans on a lot of liquid lunch and liquid courage. Last time on Deep Space Nine, Captain Sisko is planning for life after the Dominion War, has picked out the perfect spot on Bajor for his new home, and wants to spend the rest of his days with Cassidy as husband and wife. However, the prophet Sarah, Sisko's birth mother, warns him in a vision that if her son follows this path, he will only know sorrow. Meanwhile on Cardassia, as Wayun and the female changeling move forward with secret plans, Damar's loyalty to the Dominion begins to falter, with each Cardassian life lost in their campaign. To complicate things further, Dukat meets secretly with Damar and asks for a surgeon to surgically alter him to look Bajoran for reasons yet unknown. Finally, after saving Worf, who has been adrift in a cargo crate in the Badlands after a devastating Jem'Hadar attack, Ezri's runabout is downed by a Jem'Hadar patrol, stranding them on the planet Goralis III. During their isolation, they discover that they still have feelings towards each other, but are abducted by the Breen shortly after. And now, the continuation. In his office, Captain Sisko tries to explain to his son Jake what the cryptic vision from the Prophets means. Jake is unconvinced that following the Prophets' path is the right choice, as he wants so badly for his father to find happiness with Cassidy. Before they can discuss this matter any further, Colonel Kira informs Sisko that Kai Wynn has arrived to meet with her emissary, as she and her guards enter the captain's office, Kai Wen showers Benjamin with congratulations and even offers to help plan his wedding ceremony. Sisko then confesses to her that the prophets have recently spoken to him with a warning. Kai Wen offers the emissary a few words of cold comfort and excuses herself from his presence. However, upon leaving Ops, she stumbles under the psychic strain from her very first vision from the prophets, who proclaim that the emissary has faltered and that she must bring about the restoration of Bajor, with the help of a guide who possesses wisdom of the land. Act 1. Worf and Dax are still prisoners on the Breen ship, and have been unsuccessful in escaping their cell. After being provided with algae-paste food canisters, they try to bolster their spirits with a little gallows humor, as Ezri pictures the Breen, underneath their imposing armored veneer, as being covered in fur. After all, it's supposed to be very cold on Breen. Knowing that this was always Jadzia's way to relieve tension in dire situations, Worf continues to explore his and Ezri's newfound relationship and the future that it may hold for them. On Cardassia, Wayun rouses a very hungover and unkept Damar, who has once again indulged in an evening's comfort with women and Kanar. And before they depart for a secret meeting, Wayun unsettles Damar by telling him that he knows Damar provided Dukat with the resources to transform himself into a Bajoran. Later that day, a more coherent Damar meets with Dukat and supplies him with everything he needs for his upcoming journey. 
Ducat is visibly disappointed that his former second has been laid so low. He also confesses to Damar that the Paw Wraiths have a destiny for him, but before he leaves, Ducat encourages Damar to become the leader that Cardassian needs, and offers that conviction to his friend in the gesture of a solemn handshake. Taking his leave, Ducat arrives sometime later on Deep Space Nine and makes his way through the promenade unnoticed. Act 2 Having recently returned from a cargo run, Cassidy is in Captain Sisko's quarters, excitedly showing off her new Navatan shawl and planning to wear it during her wedding ceremony as a Bajoran symbol of good luck. However, she notices that Benjamin is distant and lost in thought. Without mincing words, Benjamin tells Cassidy of his vision and what his mother, Sarah, has foretold. Cassidy asks him plainly what he intends to do. Trying to reassure Cassidy by professing his love for her, he confesses that he cannot ignore the will of the prophets and chooses to heed Sarah's warning. Cassidy steals herself, removes her engagement ring, places it on the table next to Benjamin, and quietly leaves. Meanwhile, on the Breen ship, Worf rouses Ezri from a bad dream of being chased through an icy cave by a clawed Breen, one of which, after removing his helmet, looks like Dr. Bashir. As Ezri lectures Worf on the significance of dreams, they share a respite of comfort before several real Breen soldiers barge into their cell, subdue them with stun batons, and drag Worf away while a dazed Ezri pleads to know where they are taking him. Back on Deep Space Nine, Dukat's alias as the simple farmer, Anjol Tanan, from Reliketh, is complete. Having been granted an audience with her eminence, his words stir Kaiwin, who becomes convinced that Anjol is the guide that the prophet said they would deliver to her. Act 3. Dukat, as Anjol, sits with Kaiwin for tea and recounts to her that his farmlands in Reliketh have suffered tremendously during the past year. But what piques Kaiwin's curiosity even more is Angel's account of having to purge his lands with fire to eradicate the blight and poison from the soil so that the restoration of his land could begin. Back on Deep Space Nine, Kira updates Captain Sisko on the current demands for repairing the Klingon fleet. However, Sisko is once again preoccupied with the Prophet's warnings. He confesses to Kira that he plans on defying their wishes because he still has desires and plans for his own happiness. Kira believes that he should walk the Prophet's path, but Sisko believes in his heart that he must do what is right for his and Cassidy's future together. Meanwhile, on the bridge of a Jem'Hadar ship heading towards parts unknown, Wayun and the female founder, whose outward appearance reflects tremendous suffering from the Changeling Plague, discuss Damar's current attitude as well as plans to ensure a victorious outcome to the war. On the Breen ship, a barely conscious wharf is returned to his cell, suffering the after-effects of a brutal interrogation by way of cortical implants. As he awakens, he chastises himself for being so weak, and would rather die with honor than be held captive and helpless. And before she can comfort him, once again, more Breen appear, subdue Worf, and take Ezri away. Act 4 Enjoying each other's company over a bottle of spring wine meant for the emissary's wedding, Angel regales Kaiwin with a tale of how he miraculously survived the occupation simply by chance. It turns out that the same Cardassian, a dispatcher named Prenar, misread orders that spared 100 Bajorans from execution. To her amazement, Kaiwin remembers that at the very same time, 
she bribed Preenar with several precious gemstones from her tabernacle to spare those very same 100 Bajorans. It appears that destiny has brought Kaiwen and Anjul together, as well as their shared distaste for the emissary who they believe can and will never understand the true suffering of the Bajorans during the occupation because he is simply not one of them. Later, Quark arrives at Captain Sisko's quarters with a very special delivery, a Torellian diamond ring meant for Cassidy. Making light of the non-refundable special purchase, Quark leaves Sisko remarking that it would be a pity that something so valuable should go to waste. Meanwhile on the Breen vessel, Dax has returned from her interrogation, barely conscious and delirious. Worf tries to comfort her, but in her delirium, he is taken aback as she lets slip a desire for Julian to kiss her. Back on the station, Kaiwin is roused from sleep by Anjol, who needed to see her at once. He comes bearing miraculous news. Anjol's brother, who tends their farm, has told him that sprouts have begun to grow from saplings planted only a week ago. Kaiwin tells Anjol that this is a sign for his brother to take care of the farm while Anjol stays with her eminence. Asking Anjol to call her Adami, they look deeply at each other and kiss. Act 5 As Cassidy and her crew disembark and unload their cargo from their most recent run, Sisko finds her and professes his love for her once and for all, casting aside the warnings of his mother and the prophets. Convinced that he means it this time, Cassidy accepts, and very, very shortly after they leave the cargo bay, they are standing at a makeshift altar in the wardroom, surrounded by as many of their family and loved ones who could be mustered at such short notice, much to Quark's chagrin as caterer. In attendance, of course, are Jake, as his father's best man, Nog, who performed his bosun's call expertly to begin the ceremony, Odo, who quietly observes a slightly distraught Kira, Dr. Bashir, who barely made it in time, and Chief O'Brien, making light of Ezrian Worf not being there. As Admiral Ross presides over the ceremony, both Benjamin and Cassidy profess their commitment to each other, and during the final exchange of rings and vows, Sarah appears to Sisko in a vision just as he's about to place his ring on Cassidy's finger. Sarah pleads with Benjamin one last time not to go through with the marriage, but he tells her that he has chosen Cassidy and his own happiness over the prophets. Back on the Breen ship, Worf berates Ezri about what she said about Julian when she was barely conscious after her interrogation. Suddenly, a Breen patrol bursts into the cell and they are all beamed away, onto the bridge of a Jem'Hadar ship. Waiting to greet their Breen guests are Wayun and Damar, who now realizes the full intention of Wayun's secret meeting. The Dominion has entered negotiations with the Breen, and if this alliance is successful, it will tip the balance of power in the Dominion's favor. And by offering Worf and Dax as a gift to Wayun, it seems that the Breen's negotiations are off to a very strong start. The end. Well, thanks for the recap, Norman. Man, I, I feel like Jake, you know, there are some episodes we don't get Jake at all, but here right at the top of the show, um, when he's having this chat with his dad about what the prophet said, and it's like, you, you can't marry Cassidy, or you shouldn't marry Cassidy, and he says, it's the same thing. I don't see why it's any of their business. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to call it right now. Jake Sisko, smartest person on the show. 
He knows the room. He reads the room so fast. He does. He does. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I I think that we're probably going to say, yes, Jake, you're right. Everyone should agree with you because you're right. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Also, in that same scene, uh, you know, he gets the announcement. Kai Wynn is here to see you. Can I just say that Cisco's facepalm is my facepalm? I feel you. I feel you, man. I get it. Face palms in my child. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody make that a meme. Alan, do you hear us? Make that a yes, meme. Face, that's it. <laughs> face that's palms it. in my child. <laughs> however, however, I know we love to disparage Kai Wen. And mm-hmm. if she were played by any other actor lesser than Louise Fletcher, yeah, might be different. But watching her is a privilege. It really is. It is. And look, she I'm going to have a lot to say about her in this episode. Even though the character makes my skin crawl, there is something even more interesting about her in this episode Mm -hmm. that I can't wait to get to. So, yeah, hold on. Also, I have to say, that's Worf saying that he and Esri will have many years together is... It, it's sorry. not good. It's not good. But but look, but we know where this is headed. I just I, I kind of love that that is parked right there early in the episode, and just think like, oh, this is not going to end well. It's like okay, <laughs> I'm going to be really hard on Worf in this episode. I'm just going to like come out and say it, dude. It's such a jock bro moment. It's like, dude, you and I are going to like we're going to have like such a tight relationship, you know? And like the girls like. I, I, you know, yeah, and this guy's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're going to totally go to prom. You know, I'm going to take <laughs> you to the dance. I'm like, does does she have a say in this? I know. Right? I know. But <sighs> I do love that they set up like the threat of the brain in a very mm-hmm. kind of like comedic way at first. But man, those brain, that armor and like that, just that unknown gunslinger man with no name. And there's like 20 of them or 30 yeah. of them on the ship. Yeah, yeah. It kind of like sets the tone of this faceless, nameless powerful entity that like what's going to happen with these guys and we see what happens we're like oh no right yeah. right uh damar and Kanar. i don't think that there's enough Kanar <laughs> just like anymore. saying that i do yeah i really do yeah uh, that should be a shirt yeah but i don't think that there's enough Kanar anymore to drown out how damaged his soul is man for a character that just was on for like one or two lines the first time we saw him, mm-hmm. how he has grown and how fascinating he is. I uh, have to say his hangover look is pretty intense. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I do wonder, you know, do Cardassians sleep in that weird pointy leather armor all the time? Uh, because it looks very uncomfortable. But that's what happens when you drink that much canard. That's a joke, but I'm also being serious. Yes. He was that yeah. trashed. He was that, yeah. Right? Good point. Yeah. Good point, yeah. And I do love Dakot calling him out. I mean, that that was a pretty impressive scene. Uh, that was uh, kind of awesome. I am going to speak about that a, a little bit later on uh, in discussion, but I really do love the moment that Damar and Dukat have. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. if things went differently this could have been so much better for both of us. We could have been actual, mm. really different, better people. Now, I'm not excusing Dukat for what he did during the occupation, but Damar had a chance. Yeah. And I think Dukat's like, don't screw it up like I did. You have a shot at doing something yeah. great. Yeah. Right? Um, that's right. the way I read it. We'll get into that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of just great acting, again, this this episode is just completely like full of great actors. 
Yeah. When when Cassidy puts that ring down and just she doesn't overplay the scene. She plays that scene perfectly. Yeah. Just silent, reserved, steeled, wounded, and seen. Yeah. Right. It, it's great. Well, because right before that, when she says that, almost sounds like a threat. You know, again, it, it's Cassidy being able to see right through to the truth of the matter, and she has every right to her feelings on this. Mm-hmm. I, I thought all of that was played perfectly. Yep. Um, I do going back to Esri and uh, uh, Worf for a moment. You know, dreams are full of things that don't make sense, and then uh, Worf says that's why it's best to ignore them. <laughs> okay, I, look, Worf, not the worst thing to say uh, uh, out of all the things you could have and have said in the past, but um, you could use your own advice when Esri dreams something that you don't approve of. Uh, maybe just slip back to that idea that you just told yourself about not not paying them any attention. Yeah, let's pin that, okay? <laughs> yeah, okay, all right, fair. So every scene with Angel and Ka- and, uh, and mm-hmm. Kai Wynn, well, Mark Alimo and Louise Fletcher, is it me or – I mean, I love Mark Alimo as an actor, but sure. is it me or does she elevate his game? Oh. Right? Oh, because there's that, Marco Limo as yeah. Dakot, which is a great game. That's an A game. But the scenes yeah. that she has with him, having the spring wine and the tea and all that stuff, his he just gets taken up to the A plus notch with her. He does. He he's so good as Dakot, and then and we you know rightfully so praise somebody like Jeffrey Combs or uh, JG, you know, actors who have inhabited a lot of different roles in DS9, and they're all very good, and each time they're in this new role, they bring something to it. There is something about Mark Alimo in this mm-hmm. as Angel, which is completely riveting, I think partly because we know him as Gul Dukat, mm-hmm. but there is something else going on there, and um, it just makes you ask so many questions. You know, I I wonder, I think the script very cleverly plays its hand by not giving you all the details yep. about the steps between Dukat's decision to go undercover like this and, and how he got there, but it makes you ask, you know, is everything just revealed to him by the paw race, you know, explained or directed to him? Did he just get an inkling of an idea and then do a bunch of research on these very specific places in Bajor, these specific people, and go with this look? I mean, how much of that is him directing or them directing? It's great. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying, man, his body language, his demeanor, he is inhabiting this Bajoran character, and it is amazing to watch mm-hmm. it, it, it's it, his his cadence i mean clearly you can hear his voice through it but so much has changed i uh, it's fascinating i i could watch hours and hours of this um <laughs> speaking of body language uh female changeling falling apart getting more disturbing yeah which is very interesting to watch but especially wayun's reactions to her mm-hmm. very interesting to watch well he's watching um, his god Fall apart. Fall apart. Yeah. So yeah. how much of that faith is being put to the test? Incredible. Mm-hmm. Incredible stuff. I, I do want to go back to Dukat and Win for a moment because you mentioned spring wine. And uh, it, it's very 
clear, kind of kind of like water, I guess. And all these the little details of these scenes, like I'm watching him drink it. First of all, I love that it was a bottle that she had reserved for the emissary's wedding. Yeah. She was like, nope. <laughs> nope. That tells you everything you need to know mm-hmm. about how invested she is in him. Exactly. And therefore herself. But then you wonder, like, okay, does Dukat really like this? Does he really enjoy the spring wine? Or does he find it disgusting and he's just playing along? His poker face is unbelievable. Impenetrable. Impenetrable. I love it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Him telling Kai Wen, and we'll get into this regarding the emissary, regarding regarding Cisco, he's not really one of us, is he? Man, Mm -hmm. it is so easy for him to say exactly the right thing to win her interest and loyalty fascinating again to watch this and i I know that their relationship is going to be a part of our discussion and speaking of that i love the whole prenar story just again a stroke of genius that tells you everything you need to know whether this is how much of it is manufactured on his end? Just he's got an inkling of an idea, a couple of facts to string together and let her run with it. So good. But the thing is that at this time, we don't know how studied he is about this entire escapade. Like we don't know how much he's planned, how much he's thought through, if he's just reading the room if he's just mm-hmm. improvising because his yeah. level of sociopathic ability is <laughs> extraordinary it's beyond yeah so yeah it's very true and that's the thing like all of this works on all of those levels you, you could see it as somebody who has sat through and studied and figured out step by step like playing this massive game of 3d chess or he is a guy who is so good at reading the room that he is improvising his way through it and doing a masterful job mm-hmm. Also have to say, hookup of the century. Ducat and Wynn, it is so delightfully twisted, and I am here for it, 100%. I bet you, when this show aired and that happened, if I may quote (laughs) Obi-Wan Kenobi, a thousand souls (laughs) suddenly (laughs) cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. (laughs) Or something to that effect. the, the, The audience must have gone ballistic they must have lost their minds when that happened you're like are you serious like this is happening right now uh rightfully so something also that um i i thought was not as interesting as that obviously but (laughs) they they put a a huge deal of importance on this um this ring this diamond ring this uh talarian diamond ring why not just replicate Mm it yeah you know yeah but yeah I know that you can replicate some things. And I know that, you know, people out there, like, calm down because they want to do something special. They want to have something real, not replicated. But I also kind of, like, wanted them to focus a little bit more on, like, Cisco saying, I spent, like, a whole year's salary saving up for this. <laughs> you know, because Quark made uh, the, the funny comment of this is non-refundable. So money's being yeah. spent, again, yeah. with the whole currency thing here with Deep Space Nine. How many yeah. how many credits did he have to save up? How much is he making on a soldier's salary, on a captain's salary? You know, does he have a little side thing going on with investments? Who knows? Right. right. But I don't exactly. know. Exactly. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. That's a rabbit hole yeah. I can't ever not not go down. I, I know. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of glaring, you know. Uh, speaking of that wedding, there is a line here that is so out of place to me because Julian says to Miles, too bad Ezri and Worf couldn't be here. Well, yeah, 
But that's an odd way to phrase it because your friends have been missing for several days now. You know, it's not just like, oh, they had a prior commitment and they're off doing something. Like, no, 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 no. They're they're gone. You have no idea where they are. She stole a runabout and you haven't heard from her for days. I guess he didn't hear my last time on Deep Space Nine opening. I guess so, so, exactly. But hey, about that wedding, look, I am so glad that Captain Sisko was able to drag Admiral Ross away from his busy desk job of subverting the moral authority of Starfleet uh, long enough (laughs) to officiate at his wedding. By the way, Julian must have been so glad to see him. That must have been awkward. Oh, great reunion. Right, so awkward. I'm sure. In such a small room. That would be funny. Like, you know, he was like 20 minutes, you know, to get there, and he's like buttoning up and sweating. He was like, oh, oh, hi, Admiral Ross. (laughs) Would you like some Romulan ale? Is that illegal? What? Uh, Nice. Don't talk to me about illegal. Uh, and speaking of uninvited guests, come on, Prophet. Seriously, can he just leave Ben alone long enough in the middle of his wedding just to put the ring on? Come on. Come on. So I was so fascinated by by learning, like, inter arnum enum silent legus. Did I say that right? Yeah. Uh, inter arma. Arma. Arma enum silent legus. Enum silent legus. Yeah. I decided yeah. to, like, see if there were any other hidden Latin meanings in Star Trek, oh, uh, especially okay. in Deep Space Nine. And I actually did discover a Latin phrase. And I bet you Deep Space Nine fans didn't see what I saw in this Ooh. episode. So the okay. Latin phrase that I learned in the subtext of this episode is prophetus maternus interruptus, <laughs> meaning motherly prophet interruption. Because come on, like, come really? On. Like, right when Benjamin's going to put the ring on Cassie's finger, snap, mother prophet dearest comes up and warns him one last time, don't do this because things... Come on, man. Like, on on, placing with the ring on her finger. Come on. You got better things to do. If Kai Wynn shows up to bless your upcoming wedding, my advice is just elope. Just go and elope. No one will hold it against you. We'll get right back. Till death do us part, but first a word from this week's sponsors. Hey, um, if it's anybody's guess, you want to know what I'm up to at night? Well, let's see. I'm uh, I'm usually watching Star Trek. Um, I'm usually taking notes, and I'm usually in bed doing all of that. Yeah, because uh, quite frankly, I do a lot of my work in bed because it's very comfortable, uh, and I like to sleep. So whatever it is that you do in bed, I mean, it could be work, could be sleep, could be other things, let your imagination run wild, you can do so in the height of comfort with a new mattress from Helix Sleep. So Helix Sleep, as we have told you, they have a quiz. It takes two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preference with the perfect mattress for you. Everybody is unique, and Helix knows that. So there are a lot of different mattress models to choose from. There's soft, there's medium, there's firm. There's mattresses that cool you down if you sleep hot. There are plus-size mattresses for plus-size folks. Norman, tell us what you got. Yeah, so I took the Helix quiz, and again, it's like two minutes, like 120 seconds. I could do math, right? And... But I answered all their questions. I was matched with the model that I liked. I, I was the, it was the Twilight model because I wanted something that was kind of like medium firm, and I sleep on my stomach. And then Carol put in her information, and then we came up with kind of like this 
all-in-one encompassing answer to all of our sleep problems. I'm serious. Like with two people sharing the same mattress with four different like needs for that mattress and they get it right. That's pretty amazing. That's saying something. It's, it's a huge upgrade over like the mattress of the past, you know, those funny mattresses that you think have springs popping out of them and stuff like that. So <laughs> when you sit down and take this quiz, be honest, tell them exactly what you want because that quiz will match you to the mattress of your dreams. You know, and it's shipped right to your door for free. You never have to go to a mattress store again, which is pretty much 100% amazing every single time you think about it. Uh, but don't take my word for it. Don't take my word for how awesome Helix is. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Go to them. Take their two-minute sleep quiz. 120 seconds for the best customized mattress fit that will give you the best sleep of your life. I think that's worth it. They also have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. That's right. HelixSleep.com slash MissionLog. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at HelixSleep.com slash MissionLog. You know, John, going online without ExpressVPN is kind of like changing while leaving your window wide open. Uh, Unless you're into that. Well, I I mean, you know, you've done that. Maybe I've done that. uh, Maybe not on purpose. Look, I'm I'm not judging, okay? Right. But that's the thing. You (laughs) didn't do it on purpose. Right. Maybe someone may have glanced. Allegedly. Some of the privates. Yes. In that thing that was going on in the room. Yes. You don't want your privacy invaded like that, even if it's not your fault. So this is why you need ExpressVPN. Yeah. In fact, you could say that everybody needs a VPN, really. I mean, these days, come on. When you go online without a VPN, your ISPs, your internet service provider, they can see every single website you visit. And then they can legally turn around and sell this information without your consent to ad companies and tech giants who then use that data to target you. It's nefarious, and I'm fed up with it. So to take that analogy with a window just a little further, pull down the screen, and that's just like having ExpressVPN. When you use ExpressVPN, ISPs cannot see your online activity. Your identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server. That's a big word, anonymized. Your data is also encrypted for maximum protection. It's easy to use. It's really literally a one-click app, one-click button protecting all your devices, your phones, your laptops, routers. Everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can be protected. Look, I barely do anything online without that VPN active, for sure. I think about you know financial information or just personal stuff. I don't want it out there. I don't want anybody seeing it or turning around and selling it to somebody about me. So secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash mission log. And you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com slash mission log. Okay, John. So here is where the proverbial rubber Hits the proverbial road. Oh, I, I'm so ready for Proverbs <laughs> in this. Yes, talk to me. So, so Proverbs 
question mark, dot, question mark, question mark. Okay. The reason why I use so many question marks, because I have questions about one very particular thing in this episode Mm -hmm. that you and I have kind of alluded to. Have we run out of ideas for Worf? That is a big question. Um, Worf is a beloved character. Worf was a breakout character from the very beginning of TNG. Worf has had the longest uninterrupted run on Star Trek of any character. So state your case, sir. I'm curious. In this episode specifically, and in this entire last season, generally, he's been written almost like a pouty child. If he doesn't get his way, he pouts until he becomes angry, then lashes out until he gets his way. I don't think I'm wrong here, based on what I've seen so far in this season and and perhaps even before that. So how is this honoring Jadzia's memory by trying to have the best of both worlds now with Jadzia's memory in Dax, but Esri facilitating that? What happened to... All of the sacrifices that he made and that Julian made and O'Brien made and Martok made to get Jazia into Stovokor. Does that even apply now? Yeah, it, it's like every single time. Uh, yes, I'm agreeing with you. Uh, um, <laughs> it's like every single time we have seen growth in Worf and you think, wow, this is somebody who started out so different and he's been through so much. Just think about all the the familial stuff. We just that alone that has shaped Worf and then should have shaped him into a better person. Somebody who would look to and go, oh yeah, he can use that experience and be a better father. He can use that experience and be a better leader. He can use that experience and be a better husband because he's been through all these very challenging things. But it's two steps forward, three steps back every single time. Yeah. I guess the big question here is, did the writers even consider what would happen to Worf once the soul of Jadzia stepped back on the station and reentered his life? Because mm-hmm. there's one thing about having the physical person, Ezri Dex. Mm-hmm. He didn't fall in love with Ezri Dax. He fell in love with Jadzia Dax. Mm -hmm. So everything that he's doing to Ezri is abusive because he doesn't love Ezri. Yeah. Now, he doesn't love Ezri Tegan. Let me be specific. Mm -hmm. He loves the Dax memory that Ezri is summoning because she can't help it because that's how Dax symbiotes work. Yeah. So what Worf is doing is he's trying to get the best out of that, that Dax part of Jadzia, but use Ezri as the physical manifestation of his needs, for his needs. Yeah. Does that seem right to you? A hundred percent, no. Um, and and look, I, I ranted about this last week, and I apologize because now I feel like I run the risk of doing more of the same, but my sympathy has run out. And let's face it, there, Worf has been through some horrific things for which we should have sympathy. But instead of a noble Klingon warrior who spouts honor above all else, Worf, you are like a, well, like you said, a pouty child. He's like a hurt adolescent here. And, and sure, I could actually be fine with that 
if this were a character trait that we're getting into now for some reason, where where he's been humming along and everything else has been okay, but then a roadblock comes up that that changes. But no, wait. The, this is not. None of this is enough to justify what the the way he is expressing this, the way he is acting out. We have, as I just said, we have had more than ten years of Worf on screen at this point. Ten years of Worf in relationships and Worf at work and in a family and learning and growing and finding himself. And all of that goes out the window again so we can have him act like a complete and utter jerk to Esri. I will repeat what I said last week. Esri owes him nothing. And it is abusive and wrong for him to keep forcing her into this position. It, it's getting to the point that it's uncomfortable to watch. Um, it, the, a line that he has in here, I should not have trusted you with my heart. You dishonored me and yourself. And that's just talking about the fact that she murmured something about Julian. This is unconscionable. Yeah. Worf... I, I cannot think of what needs to happen. Like, this guy has had, av- had every opportunity along the way. He has had a loving family who brought him up. He has had a Klingon family with uh, actually some good people around him, like Martok. He has had, um, well, he has had the benefit of Counselor Troy, not just as a colleague, but as a lover as well. True. Yeah. And it's like the dude has learned nothing. And I'm, like I said, I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm feeling terrible for Esri Dax. This is a mess. You know, uh, switching gears from the dude who hasn't learned anything to, I think, the dudes that are learning a lot. (laughs) I really, really like this one scene. It's probably my favorite scene in the episode where you have that just the quiet moment between uh, Dukat now as Angel and Mm. Damar. And Dukat knows that he's... He's corrupted, that he's broken, you know, that in some way he's just not right for the Cardassian people. That's why he has to leave and follow this vision quest of the Paw Wraiths. Yeah. You get that. But there's this moment of clarity that he has with Damar, looking at Damar and saying that, you know, what happened to my to my second in command? What happened to this, this you know, this vibrant, you know, high-spirited, stalwart, stoic leader of Cardassia? What what went wrong? Uh, and, and I think in that... In that moment, Dukat's like, I know where it went wrong. Damar tasted what I tasted. He tasted that the, the thinnest inkling of true power, you know, mm. in the Dominion, uh, with, the, with, with the way the Dominion have lured him to his side or to their side. And he's like, don't do this. Cardassian needs a leader. You're it if you follow a better path. Damar, to me right now, is probably the most fascinating character in this entire, like, narrative march to the end he's mm-hmm. he's just so fascinating and complex to watch i, I just I, I love both of them acting together but there's something that there's something that is now pushing damar towards i think a different path and it's going to be really interesting to see okay put put yourself in damar's position here i mean first of all he's being manipulated by the dominion specifically mm-hmm. Wayun, and he's got this pretty understandable drinking problem at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's faced with somebody who 
Ducat, even though he expresses himself with clarity, Ducat is so far off the deep end at this point that he's gone to the extent of having himself surgically altered to look like a Bajoran and is communing with the Pa Wraiths. I mean, how how can Damar du, uh, possibly wrap his head around this to be able to take any of this seriously to put him back on a path of self-realization? You know? I think it's because he's just – I think that DeMar came up as a man of the people, as a soldier, the common soldier archetype, mm-hmm. like Martok, mm-hmm. right? The, people, yeah, the, yeah. Reason, why, the yeah. reason why we love General Martok is because he wasn't a, an officer born and bred. You know, he worked his way up through the system to gain the respect of his people, to gain the respect of his men or the people under his command. I don't know too much about DeMar, but that's where I think that DeMar is coming from, and – the lives of all the Cardassians lost, mm-hmm. he's made mention of in episodes yeah. past, especially in the last episode in Penumbra. So there's something that's very patriotic about him if he can return to the base premise of who he is as in service of the Cardassian people. Yeah. Once see, he figures that out, I think that we'll see something spectacular happen. And this is interesting because this is the mark of some of the very good writing that has gotten us to this point, which is that here's Dukat, who is sociopathic, you know, and and he's driven by all these strange motivations. He he needs the love of the people that he subjugates. I mean, it, it it's a psychological mess. Um, and he has this thirst for power for all of these reasons, you know, political and personal. Damar, like you said, he's he's cut from this cloth of this Cardassian machine, uh, who are basically fascists. You know, uh, this is the the culture that he has grown up in. But but there's also something that's very like working class about him. Mm-hmm. That he he's just sort of like the guy who needs to do the good job, but when things get beyond his grasp, uh, he falters. And I'm not saying that we need to have sympathy for the terrible things that Cardassians do, but I think they've done a great job of humanizing a character like Damar, where you can start to understand the cracks that he has in his uh, personality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pivoting a little bit to uh, probably the biggest (laughs) prof elephant in the room. Oh, we're going to talk about profits, my friend. (laughs) We are going to talk about profits because how can we not – I, I think that there is a there was a point in this episode where I'm I'm really not a fan of what Kira is doing with pushing the profits over Cisco's happiness. Look, mm-hmm. I know that she's a person of faith. I know her faith got her through a great deal. Uh, it got her through the occupation. It got her through a lot of trials, you know, in her life. I understand that. But now you're dealing with somebody who you love and respect and have had their back for what seven years now. Hmm. And you still choose the prophets, their will over the happiness of your companion, your compatriot, your friend, your emissary. Mm-hmm. Why would you do that? I don't get it. I, I just don't get yeah. it. And this is something that uh, it takes away the nuanced writing of her character, someone who has battled the complexity of all of these different decisions in her life. And all of a sudden it's now well, the prophets will it is the answer. Yeah, um, I'm not on board with that. Sorry. Yeah, no, and, and I can't be either. Um, it, it's 
it's a little disturbing to watch her discomfort at that wedding and, and just think like, wow, this is all because you can't be happy for this person that you work with, you respect, you trust. He makes good decisions on his own. Well, for the most part. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, without necessarily the influence of the prophets at every turn. So it's, yeah, uh, that is, that that's rough. Um, and as long as we're talking about the prophets, I got to talk about Kai Wen. Of course. Because, oh man, Kai Wen finally has a vision she has a vision. Ooh, this amuses me to no end. I absolutely love the left turn we have taken with this story with Kai Wen. And yes, yes, as I said at the beginning, Kai Wen absolutely makes my skin crawl. Her her condescending, sanctimonious demeanor, her assumed superiority, the way she manipulates belief to fit her agenda. It is so cringe-inducing. Because it's so real and because, as you pointed out, Norman, Louise Fletcher plays these levels perfectly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also now, shout out to DS9 for creating adversaries who can keep coming back over and over and not let us get bored with them. You know, it's not just like defeat the bad guy and then they go away. No, there is a reason for them to be there. But here, all right, in this episode, she has a vision and I really want to talk about that. Her experiences lead exactly to the reason why basing any decision off a prophecy is a bad idea. She got the wrong gods, Norman. She got the wrong gods, and she doesn't even know it. (laughs) Yeah, everyone's probably assuming at this stage that they may be prophets, but remember, they may be powers too. She has no reason to assume that they're prophets, I, or, or, or a pa race, pa race, rather. Yeah, yeah. She has no reason to assume they're probably her, her life is dedicated to the prophets, of course. She's How, just wanted a vision for so long that yeah. it doesn't matter who gave her the vision, they're going to be the right ones. How could she possibly have the wrong gods talking well, to yeah. her and manipulating her? Uh, just like this nice Bajoran man who shows up in her quarters on DS9. But the, this brings us to look at Kai Wen as a very interesting parallel to Cisco. How should Cisco then, or anyone else for that matter, be sure that they've got the right gods? Doesn't matter what's said as long as it's vague enough and fits in with the predetermined desires of the person having that vision. Those prophecies can be bent and formed to fit literally whatever you like. They call so, that fortune cookie wisdom. <laughs> it is. It is. Mm-hmm. And, and a little side note here. I love that moment where uh, Kai Wen reaches out and touches Jakatsir and remarks about the strength of his pa. Like, oh, yeah. Like, literally, the veracity of this claim now is meaningless. Does, <laughs> does he have a pa? Is it strong? Okay. Is there any utility to this little trick if it can't tell you that the person whose paw you're sensing is a different species who is lying to you? Wow. No. Wow. Unless, unless yeah. she tapped into the paw wraiths that have influenced him, their I, aura. That's that, the only explanation. Yeah. 
Well, uh, but, okay, so yeah, so they're strong, but they're also lying to you and manipulating you. Can't tell that. This test only goes so far in its right. usefulness, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, you take that same problem with prophecy and you lay it right at the feet of Captain Sisko. He's been manipulated over and over again by the prophets for whose good? For theirs? For his? For Bajor? There is literally no way to tell. Mm-hmm. And whether they're paw wraiths or prophets, nobody has been able to distinguish which ones are good and to what end their prophecies even should be followed. It's a pretty convenient relationship if you're a god, <laughs> if you're a, a prophet oh, yeah. or, or a paw wraith. You just you drop in every now and then, you say something confusing and fearful, and then you just leave the corporeal beings back along their way. And, and again, I ask, to what end? Uh, if so, there is an end in all. A- at all. At all. Because, right? well, look, end would be almost meaningless because you're talking about non-corporeal beings who live outside of time. So why why would they have a stake in this? The I, I, I love how Guldicott uses this prophecy in the ancient text about the Restoration because he doesn't even have to come out and say it. He can plant an idea and let her run with it, and that is the worrying thing. You know, let, let, let's say it is, uh, it, you know, a, a prophecy by the good guys, the prophets. I'm putting that in big finger quotes, the prophets mm-hmm. as opposed to the paw race. It's still Kai Wynn's interpretation right. that it means you have to, uh, let, let's check the note here, burn everything to the ground before mm-hmm. you can rise again as the one true Bajor. That is scary stuff, and it's not exactly like that is a made-up alien context that has no bearing whatsoever on certain extreme earthbound ideologies. Right. And it's <laughs> almost as if if, you're, if we're having a conversation and you said something along the lines of internet, internets, oh, yes, <laughs> yes, I understand now. Because uh, – yeah. All you need to do for my inference of what you said is to pick up on that it meant something to me. Someone of Ducat's level of sociopathic understanding knows how to play this game. Yeah. He is the master of not only deception, but inception. Yes, that's it. That's it. And, who man, at this point, Cisco saying phrases like, I can't go against the prophets, that, that sounds way more ominous. Than it should, than is it than certainly is intended. I mean, that does then sound more like fear than choice, and that is scary. If godlike beings show up to protest your upcoming wedding, my advice is well, you know. Well, we've arrived at the end of Till Death Do Us Part, or as of the time of this recording, till about 6 o'clock Do Us Part, and then we go do something else, and we do it again next week. Wait, John, are you saying Till 6 Do Us Part? Yes. Yeah, I know. Six people, S-I-X. Till 6 Do Us Part. We'll we'll be back. We'll do it again next week, I promise. Good. Whether they want us to or right. not. So uh, here we've arrived at the part of the show where we we wrap it all up. We see if the episode holds up. We see if there are morals, meanings, messages to carry in our hearts at the end of the episode. Much like, say, um, oh, I don't know, Kai Wen would 
carry the message of a nefarious god in her heart. We'll we'll find out. So, Norman, talk to us about the episode. Does the episode hold up for you? My child. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're off to that kind yeah. of start. All right. <laughs> yeah, I really do love well-planned world-building episodes. And and even though that we're ending uh, this home stretch of Deep Space Nine, I find episodes like this and Penumbra really fascinating because I actually feel like more emotionally invested in the characters than I have in a long time. Mm-hmm. So as a standalone episode uh, in an obviously now serialized narrative arc, I would say that this is a very strong episode because in particular for just amazingly standout strong performances, especially by Marco Limo and Louise Fletcher in particular, I can watch those two read the newspaper in a scene together, mm-hmm. and it would be phenomenal. But there's also, well, also, and uh, I have to say that the kiss scene, yeah, it was a little cringy, but fascinating at the same time. Like, <laughs> yes, where is this going? Yes. Yeah. But there's also this really interesting subtext and consistency of manipulation happening at so many different levels between so many different pairs of characters that I'm I'm fascinated to see where this goes. Dakota's Angel is manipulating Kai Wen. They're creating this new alliance. Uh, you know, the Emissary is, uh, is being manipulated by the Prophets. They're manipulating Cisco, but he and Cassidy are creating an alliance in their marriage. You know, there's all of this duplicity that's happening for better or for uh, for worse. And we're just kind of stuck in this bubble of where's this going to go next? So, yeah, I think I'll get more into that specifically in my morals, meanings and messages. But I really like this episode. It's it's hard to say, yes, this withstands the test of time because it is building up a lot of momentum from Penumbra. And it's too bad that this wasn't called Umbra, but that's yeah. you know, that's just the way of it. But as a standalone episode, has great moments. As a continuation of Penumbra, absolutely builds on that. I really, really liked it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll apologize to our audience here because I feel like this will be a familiar refrain from true, over the coming true. weeks yeah. of this podcast, which is just we're doing this dance between how the episodes work individually and then how they fare as part of a longer narrative. And we'll just have to keep coming to that. It's the nature of the beast. Um, I actually like this one more than I did Penumbra. There are some similar frustrations, though, and and I honestly feel like the pacing of the episode is thrown off by the Worf and Esri story. Uh, that is a frustrating subplot, but it is also a subplot that takes a long time uh, to, to essentially hit the same beats over and over again. So I, I think in, a, in another draft, another edit, you kind of could have trimmed down that a bit and still gotten to the same point. But look, you counter that with the far more intriguing dance that Ducat is doing with Kai Wen. Mm-hmm. And then this, you know, kind of interesting story of Cisco and Cassidy. Will they or won't they? And what will Cisco's decision be? And what is the reach and the impact of the word of the prophets? You know, um, all of that stuff on its own really elevates this episode. So we might be dragging out certain plot threads here. It might be a little soap opera-ish, 
But that's what has gotten these characters reinvigorated. As you just said, you feel more invested with these characters now. So it works, and it, and it works incredibly well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I rank this one higher than I do the last one. Very curious to see where we go along the journey. Um, and, and I guess, you know, look, I, I'll, I'll jump right into morals, meanings, messages here because I kind of alluded to the uh, Cisco plot and then the, the Worf and Esri plot in this as being kind of the, the questionable parts of this episode. Um, I, are we supposed to take away something about love winning at the end of the day here? Because we do have that wedding scene as rushed as it is. But the, it's a really genuine moment when Cisco goes into that loading dock and, and sees Cassidy and her excitement, her jubilation, like, ooh, we're going to do this. We're going to do this right now. There's no more question, no more games, no more. The, it's it's two people following their hearts. So Cisco makes this decision, and and why not? I, I would hope that anyone in his position would follow his heart. There, there are too many unknowns anyway. And a prophecy from manipulative prophets, I'm sorry, is not a good basis for making this kind of decision. I'm glad that they did what they did, come what may. In Worf's case, talk about love, talk about relationship. Uh, the man is broken. He needs help. And it's not help that Esri could or should give him at all. I will repeat, she does not owe him anything. Don't be like Worf. <laughs> Bow out gracefully. Tend to your wounds elsewhere. And then come back a better person. Now, as far as the other big idea battered around by this episode, which we really talked about in the last segment quite a bit. So I, I you know, I apologize if I'm repeating myself here uh, with a rehash, but Kai Wen unknowingly is this mirror image of Cisco now because she's being manipulated by the, uh, let's just say it, the quote unquote wrong gods. And this is the kind of dubious spiritual ground that I wish DS9 had delved into a bit before yes, we got to this yes, point. Yes, <laughs> yes. Because it's brilliant. In this episode, Kai Wen is the embodiment of faith gone wrong. And it simply becomes the excuse to justify the things that she wants. There's no counterbalance anymore. She is ego run amok. And it's exactly because of her deadly combination of ego and blind obedience that she is so easily manipulated. There's no verification of what she's being told by Anjol, and no hesitation at all to interpret the sign. Kai Wen is a warning to all of us. It's as if, like, the only thing that was keeping her from being the emissary was a vision. And then the yeah, vision happened, and right. now she's like, I'm the emissary, because yeah. Cisco can't be the emissary. He's not one of us. Uh -huh. right? That is yeah. fascinating. I can't yeah. wait to see where that manipulation takes us. And that's where I landed, John. I landed with manipulation mm -hmm. being the, the, the predominant message that I came away with uh, from this episode, but also the subversion of expectations. And not, mm -hmm. not just about for the characters in this show— but the manipulation and the subversion of expectations about how that can happen to us as the viewer as well. Okay, mm -hmm. so 
this is this is at least where I see uh, the danger of setting up certain uh, uh, certain qualifications of what you think is uh, what you believe for your heroes or for hmm. those that things that uh, those elements that um, you know that influence your heroes. When you use cryptic, omniscient, omnipresent, and supernatural beings and preface them as the gods for your heroes, you, and I mean that in the writer's sense, are in many ways manipulating the audience's expectations to side with them as the force of good, as the powers that can do no wrong. Even if you, like the characters, cannot make actual sense of the goals and desires of these cryptic gods because they're wrapped up in so much cryptic dialogue that it can choke the wormhole. (laughs) We've all been frustrated to that point, and so have our heroes. I have absolutely no problem with the spiritual aspect in Deep Space Nine. In fact, I, I welcome it if it's done so in a more consistent manner. I just mm-hmm. feel that it's now being used as a crutch to write the story out of a potential corner and place the eventual fate of these characters in the decision of one man, and that's Benjamin Sisko. Mm. Now, let's take a look at this a little bit more dispassionately. And let's take a look at the nature of Cisco's destiny analytically. Everything the prophets have told him, and as we as the audience thus far, has proven that Cisco has a destiny. That's inarguable. That has been said ad nauseum. If he chooses to stray from that destiny, then he would walk a path of sorrow. Why? Right? This is the big mm-hmm. question that has led us to this mm-hmm. moment. If we take what Sarah told us as being true then the prophets have protected and manipulated every single event around Cisco's life to lead him to this moment. His own wedding Mm. day, where they made him the ultimatum, choose our way or choose sorrow. I'm with Cassidy on this when she calls that a threat. Yeah. Because... 100%. Again, if you look at this dispassionately and in the context of how it was presented, it is. Yeah. He lost Benjamin, lost Jennifer, his wife, during the Borg invasion, and was forced to watch Jake, his son, grow up without a mother. Where were the prophets to keep him from walking that path of sorrow? Mm. So for me, it will be incredibly difficult to watch the end of this series if the prophets are leaned on even harder to add more cryptic mysticism and obfuscation to the story. I want to see our heroes and even our villains be responsible for their own destinies, to be given back the agency of their own choices. Instead of being seen as so many pawns in this game of celestial gods versus mortals. Because once we start comparing the prophets to the Q or to the Metrons or to the Organians, then the agency of mortal action and the consequence and choice is completely irrelevant. And to me, Mm. this is antithetical to Star Trek. You know, the show that espouses, quote unquote, where no man or no one has gone before, meaning humanity. Mic drop. (laughs) Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment, connect with us, is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, 
Strange Bedfellows. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. If the brain take you hostage while you're thinking about getting back with your ex, okay, maybe that one is a bad sign. End transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.